0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
1: Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bytesizebio.com webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello to everybody who is listening right now we're going to welcome you to this bite size bio web seminar and today's presentation is uh, titled a guide to DNA assembly um, for drug discovery and it is being presented by Dr. Mike Smansky from the University of Minnesota and is being sponsored by Genscript. So before we get started, we just want to let you know from our sponsor, Genscript, that they're offering a free sample of a Genpart DNA block through, from April through May to commemorate National DNA Day. GenParts are custom-designed DNA fragments which encode your gene of interest for cloning into your vector of choice. They generate synthetic sequences without a template, and you're able to avoid primer design and PCR optimization. And they have a free sample coupon on the at the um, web address below. The promotion will continue through June 1st, and a link will be shared in a follow-up email. Um, so, to continue on with our talk, uh, Dr. Mike Smansky is an assistant professor of biochemistry and molecular biology and is a part of the Biotechnology Institute at the University, University of Minnesota. He obtained his Ph.D. in 2011 from the University of Wisconsin under the mentorship of Ben Shen, where he studied the biosynthesis of a new class of antibiotics. From 2002, 12, excuse me, to 2014, He performed postdoctoral research with Chris Voigt at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as an HHMI fellow of the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. Since 2014, his research group has focused on leveraging DNA synthesis and assembly of technologies for drug discovery, as well as developing novel approaches to control populations, invasive species, agricultural pests, and disease vectors. So as always, we're gonna have a question and answer session after the presentation. So please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which is gonna be on the right-hand side of your screen under your uh, panel. And then I will put them to Dr. Smansky at the end to answer. And there will be a recording of the webinar at BiteSizeBio.com, and I'll give that information again at the end of the webinar. So over to you, Dr. Smansky.
0: Okay, thank you, Kristen, for the introduction, and uh, thank you for all of you in attendance. Uh, I, I've heard nervous public speakers be given the advice that they should just imagine their audience sitting around in their pajamas, and it struck me this morning that with this being broadcast over the web and a lot of you on the West Coast, that might actually be true. So if any of you are, are sitting in your pajamas, thank you for making it easier on me. Um, the The goal for the Talk today the webinar today are laid out on the slide uh, the goal is not to get too much into the details of DNA assembly protocols or methods but more to give a 30,000 foot near view of what does it mean when we talk about DNA assembly uh, how do we use it for for drug discovery efforts and drug development efforts and what are some of the kind of newer questions that that my group is is asking in the field and so uh, with any intro uh, talk like this, I like to begin with some vocabulary. They say that you learn more new words in a first-year biology class than you do in a first-year foreign language class. And, uh, <clears throat> and so to begin with some key terms, uh, in, in my mind, when I say DNA assembly, that means something different than DNA sy- synthesis. So DNA synthesis is putting together uh, mononucleotides to form oligonucleotide sequences And traditionally, that's done by commercial vendors, many of which are are listed here. This is definitely not a comprehensive list. Uh, DNA assembly, on the other hand, is taking those synthesized or cloned genetic parts and combining them together in different organizations, changing the order, the composition, the orientation of genetic parts to build functional genetic constructs. Uh, When we talk about genetic parts, These are strings of of DNA that have a characterized genetic behavior. Uh, There are a number of different behaviors that could be encoded in the genetic part. Uh, Promoters are parts that will control transcription initiation. Ribosome binding sites are DNA sequences that, when transcribed into RNA, can help recruit a ribosome to initiate translation. And there are a variety of different genetic parts that have uh, a described function. And and those are kind of the the substrates for a DNA assembly pipeline. Uh, These genetic parts and the functions they encode are reviewed in a number of papers, one of which is cited at the bottom of the slide, and I'll let you guys uh, look up some of those citations on your own. I'll also mention that uh, there are parts registries now. Uh, including this one, which is run by the International Genetically Engineered Machine Organization. Uh, in a registry such as this one, you can find not only the information describing any any physical or empirical data associated with a genetic part, but oftentimes you can request a physical sample to be sent to you. And and the idea behind having these shared registries of genetic parts is that it'll enable communal uh, usership of the same limited set of parts. and. And hopefully as more groups around the world are using the same defined promoters, ribosome binding sites, et cetera, we'll learn more about how those parts behave in different contexts and different systems. So my group focuses on engineering multi-gene systems. Uh, We live right now in a a, uh, really exciting time where, as genetic engineers, we have control over every aspect of the design of a genetic construct, even large genetic constructs comprising dozens of genes. Uh, Recombinant DNA technology has been around for about 50 years now, but in those 50 years, the vast majority of commercial applications of recombinant DNA technology have been at a single gene level. So, you take a single gene that encodes insulin and you put it into a bacteria and you can produce insulin by fermentation. Or you take a single gene that encodes herbicide resistance and you put it into a plant and you have uh, Roundup Ready plants. However there are many biological capabilities that require the coordinated expression of dozens or several dozen gene products at the same time and those are the systems that we're interested in engineering. So my group has worked with all the, the examples shown on the slide Uh, What I'm going to focus on today is natural product biosynthesis, and that's highlighted in the bottom left. So natural products, uh, I I recognize that that term is a bit of jargon as well. If you Google the words natural products, you find all kinds of skin creams and botanicals. But in the world of organic chemistry, natural products has a, a more limited stringent definition, and it refers to a set of specialized metabolites that are produced by plants, animals, or microorganisms. Uh, These metabolites aren't required for normal growth and division, but confer some kind of added bonus to the organism that produces them. They can be bioactive molecules that kill uh, other organisms. They can be attractants, repellents, signaling molecules. And uh, organic chemists, people like me who have some kind of mutation in my brain, uh, can just look at structures like this in the middle. You know, I'm I'm the, the outlier that loved organic chemistry class. And I can look at structures like this in the middle all day. Uh, Natural products have a tremendous uh, diversity of structure, and they come in complex sizes and shapes. Um, But it's also true that natural products have had a societal changing impact in areas like medicine, agriculture, and food production. And, And that impact in society has really driven a lot of natural product research over the decades. In the past 15 years, uh, there's been a lot of new uh, energy poured into natural products research with the understanding that we really only scratched the surface in terms of discovering the natural products encoded in the natural world. Once we started sequencing genomes of bacteria that live in the soil or, or organisms that live in the oceans or the rainforest, we realized that the vast majority of natural products that are encoded in, this genomes, in these genomes are still unknown. And so there's a whole new field now called genome mining, which aims to characterize and discover what molecules are encoded by this uh, new sequence potential. And you know there are, there are tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, of natural product gene clusters that encode the biosynthesis of these molecules in public databases. Any one of these molecules might encode the next blockbuster antibiotic or anti-cancer drug. And so on this slide, what I'm showing, there's a review that's republished every couple of years by Newman and Craig that highlights the number of new drugs approved by the FDA that uh, derive from natural products. And so this weird-looking pie chart shows all of the new drug approvals in in, in a 30-year period. And while natural products themselves only occupy a small slice of that pie, uh, if you include molecules that are direct derivatives of natural products or synthetic molecules meant to mimic natural products or other synthetic molecules that are inspired by natural products, you'll see that a large number of clinically approved drugs originate from molecules in nature. Uh, with this, uh, these new efforts to discover new molecules from nature that are encoded in genomes uh, of sequenced organisms, there are several different strategies. One strategy is called heterologous production, where the goal is to take all of the genes required to make a complex molecule, and move it into a heterologous host that presumably is easy to culture in the lab and and to manipulate genetically, and then see if if those genes allow that host to produce a new chemical of interest. So this is not a new approach. It's been done uh, dozens of times successfully over the past 20 years, uh, although most of those successes come with an asterisk next to them, in that the titers, or the amount of natural product produced in a heterologous expression system, tends to be dramatically lower than the amounts produced in the native host. A fairly comprehensive review that was written 10 years ago, summarizing the first 50 examples of heterologous production in Streptomyces, which are Uh, the most prolific producers of of natural products uh, known, only three of the 50 molecules were produced at amounts that were equal to or greater than the amounts produced in the native host. The vast majority were produced at 1% or less uh, uh, of the amounts when the DNA was moved to a heterologous system, and this is at odds with our current drug development pipelines. So another review published around the same time highlights the amount of compound required at different stages in the drug development pipeline. So, if you have a molecule and you want to know is it bioactive, does it have antibiotic activity, anti-cancer activity, you can normally do those tests with only microgram quantities of the molecule of interest. If you want to determine the structure of that molecule, uh, you need roughly a three order of magnitude increase in the amount of molecule, normally milligram scales is what we're talking about. To perform initial, additional or initial uh, structure activity relationship studies where you modify the, the chemical structure and see how that affects its activity, you need access to gram quantities. And then to bring a lead compound all the way to a clinical trial, you need on the order of 100 grams to kilogram quantities of that natural product. And so even if you have the ability to use heterologous expression, uh, To identify a new structure if you're only producing nanograms or microgram quantities that's not enough to support a drug development pipeline and this is an area that I think uh, high throughput DNA assembly and the ability to rapidly build and test alternate genetic designs in your heterologous host can really be leveraged to increase the the titer of a molecule of interest relatively quickly I'm going to make a few uh, points to, to justify that comment, that claim, using cited examples in the literature. So this first example is, is something that I worked on as a graduate student in Ben Chen's lab, where we had a strain that produced an antibiotic called platensin. That was a, a new antibiotic discovered a few years earlier by Merck, and what you, the structure of platensin is shown down here in the bottom right, and in green is a titer that we got when we expressed uh, the gene cluster in the native host. Uh, At the time, we were doing a lot of academic work around heterologous expression and moving just about every gene cluster we had in the lab into a heterologous host and seeing if it worked or not. And so the results from heterologous expression of this platensin gene cluster are shown in red. It was successful in that we did produce platensin in a model heterologous host, although it's one of those successes with an asterisk because it came at a dramatic reduction in titer only one milligram per liter in the heterologous system, compared to hundreds of milligrams per liter in the native host. One thing that we did in this experiment that that most groups haven't done, is we looked in the heterologous host for uh, for, for the production of additional metabolites. And the structure of six of those metabolites that we isolated and solved are shown here. You see that each of these metabolites, and I'll mention that none of these were produced in the native host strain, each are produced at greater titers or greater amounts than our desired final product. And you can see from the structure of these molecules that they bear resemblance to proposed pathway intermediates. And what this told us is that the problem with low titer of our desired compound isn't due to a lack of metabolites entering into the biosynthetic pathway. In fact, there's a lot of carbon going into the pathway, but much of that carbon is falling off the tracks before it gets all the way through the biosynthesis to our desired final compound. And the question is, why is that? We didn't change the blueprints at all. The blueprints encoded in this uh, 30 gene cluster. We moved the gene cluster unmodified from one species to another, but that movement between species uh, was was accompanied by dramatic decrease in, in performance of that metabolic pathway. So the easiest place for us to look at the time was that gene expression. And in this 30-gene cluster, there's roughly 18 operons. So we did uh, RNA-seq or uh, an RT-PCR of those 18 operons. And what I'm showing is just a snippet of the data. We looked at many different time points. And basically, what we saw is that gene expression was all over the place. Some genes were expressed too early, some too late. Some were expressed too strongly, some too weakly. And so without changing the DNA sequence, just moving between hosts affected the relative expression level of these enzymes in the biosynthetic pathway. Now that shouldn't have come as too much of a surprise. There's a lot of examples from the field of of synthetic biology that confirm moving between hosts can change relative expression levels. Here's an example from Eric Clavin's group at the University of Washington. And what they did in this 2012 paper was uh, develop a bistable switch in E. coli, and the, the switch, when tuned properly, results in 50% of the population of E. coli being uh, RFP-expressing and 50% being GFP-expressing. And you can see that they had many different genetic designs that were properly tuned in a K strain of E. coli that achieved that, that perfect bistability set point. When they moved those genetic designs from a K strain of E. coli to a B strain of E. coli, all of them broke. And this tells you that it's not only jumps between species, but even very conservative changes in host between different strains of the same species can be enough to break a multi-gene construct uh, in in that you're changing the relative expression levels of the component parts, and that results in a non-functioning genetic circuit or metabolic pathway, etc. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Another example from the literature, this is work that I did at MIT with Chris Voigt, where we took a synthetic nitrogen fixation gene cluster and rebuilt it in several hundred different genetic designs. Here I'm showing data from the first 80 designs that we built, and each of these designs contains the exact same gene content. So the same coding DNA sequences are in every gene cluster that you see. The only thing that changes between them are things like how strong are the promoters, how do we organize those genes, do we put them into a single operon where they're all transcribed from the same promoter, or do we use different promoters to express each gene. Uh, We change the order of the genes, we change the orientation of the expression units, seemingly trivial design changes. But those design changes resulted in a tremendous difference in the performance of these synthetic gene clusters from some that recovered uh, roughly 100% of wild-type nitrogenase activity to to others that recovered almost no nitrogenase activity. Again, showing that the control of relative gene expression is is critical in the ultimate performance of a multi-gene system. And the last point that I want to make is even given the ability to control gene expression across these multiple genes, it's not always obvious where you want to set your expression levels. So for the few metabolic pathways that I would argue have been most extensively optimized from a genetic standpoint, and those include the, the taxidine pathway in E. coli, which is a product of, of the Stephanopoulos group at MIT, and the uh, artemisinin biosynthetic pathway that was transferred into yeast by the Kiesling group at Berkeley. In each case, the the final optimal genetic designs don't rely on a blanket overexpression of each of the component enzymes. Instead, one or more of the genes need to be tuned down to have the maximal titers of your compound of interest. So it's not always obvious at the outset which genes need to be tuned down and how much they need to be tuned down to maximize flux through the pathway. And it's, it's with this kind of landscape of problems in mind that my group, takes an approach of genetic refactoring when we're trying to engineer these multi-gene metabolic pathways. Genetic refactoring is a term that comes from the jargon of computer science and refactoring refers to rewriting the source code for a program without changing the overall function of that program. So right now I'm using PowerPoint to present these slides. If this were a refactored version of the PowerPoint program, It would look and behave identical to the original, but the source code would be rewritten in a way to make it more efficient or maybe make it uh, compatible with different operating systems. In genetic refactoring, the goal is the same. We're not aiming to change the function of the encoded biological machinery, but we're trying to change the underlying genetics to create a system that's more easy to engineer using modern uh, capabilities. So the steps to genetic refactoring are laid out on the slide. We begin in silico uh, by doing things like removing all of the native regulatory elements, all of the promoters, ribosome binding sites, transcription factors, etc. In extreme cases, we'll even redesign all of the coding DNA sequences to remove regulatory elements that we don't even know exist, things like secondary structure in the transcript or things like embedded promoters within a CDS Uh, just to start with as clean of a slate as possible. Those redesigned coding sequences will be synthesized using a DNA synthesis uh, vendor, and then the the synthesized genes will be reassembled into a functional gene cluster by adding back in well-characterized regulatory elements in the form of uh, promoter sequences or designed ribosome binding sites until in the end we have a fully synthetic refactored gene cluster. Now, uh, there's a lot of work that goes into genetic refactoring, and the advantages to going through all that work are, are threefold. First, all of the components that go back into a synthetic gene cluster are well-characterized, well-understood genetic parts. So this is an example of building to understand. Uh, if, if the final construct doesn't work at all, it means we didn't understand the, the requirements uh, from a genetic level for that genetic device. <clears throat> Secondly, Uh, The second advantage is that the refactoring process severs the connection, the regulatory connection, between the host genome and the gene cluster of interest. This is particularly important for engineering natural product biosynthetic pathways uh, because oftentimes the transcription factors, the regulators that control gene expression uh, of these specialized molecules are responding to unknown factors in the environment or in the media that are difficult to predict. And by replacing all of the native regulation with well characterized, understood regulatory elements, we have more control over when the genes are going to be turned on and turned off. The third advantage is that we replace what uh, nature evolved as a really complex and, and disorganized genetic architecture where you have genes pointed every possible way, you have uh, open reading frames that overlap at times, you might have promoter elements that are embedded in upstream genes, and that makes it very difficult to change one variable at a time without permuting other aspects of the gene cluster. We replace that uh, complex genetic organization with a modular genetic architecture, where in the refactored gene cluster, Every functional piece of DNA is separated on the DNA strand from the other functional pieces. And what you'll see in the following slides is that makes it much easier for us to break this apart into its component pieces and rebuild it in different combinations, different permutations, uh, to test how genetic design affects the performance of this system. And so we do that in our lab using an algorithmic DNA assembly pipeline. And on this slide, I'm highlighting the key features of the assembly pipeline that we use in our, in our lab. I'll walk through this slide kind of in reverse order, starting on the right and moving to the left. And I'll start by, by mentioning that we use a hierarchical assembly approach. So we use DNA synthesis, again, from commercial vendors to produce our, our component genetic parts. Those are then assembled into what we call cis level constructs. A cis level construct has a coding DNA sequence surrounded by cis-regulatory elements that control its expression. Those cis parts are combined into partial clusters, and the partial cluster is eventually into full clusters. The reason we have this hierarchical approach, where we, we, we purposely stop at these intermediate stages, uh, is for efficiency. There are DNA assembly methods that will allow you to take upwards of 20 or 25 parts at once and do one large assembly reaction to jump all the way, for example, from 25 individual cistrons to a 25-gene full construct. However, uh, those ambitious multi-part assembly reactions usually come at the cost of efficiency. Instead, we favor going through intermediate constructs where we're only bringing together five or six pieces of DNA at a time, isolating those intermediate plasmids, and then doing another five or six piece DNA assembly action uh, in order to maintain reaction efficiencies on the order of 90 to 95 percent. We find that the savings in cost and time and headaches that accompany verifying plasmids to make sure that they're right is well worth the uh, the extra steps of doing a hierarchical assembly pipeline. So some other features of the assembly pipeline that we use in the lab are that, uh, while I mentioned that we use well-characterized and well-understood promoters, ribosome binding sites, etc., it's also true that in different combinations of uh, genetic parts, uh, different combinations can affect the behavior. So you might have measured the strength of a promoter in one genetic context, but when you uh, add to it a new ribosome binding site, that can affect the promoter strength. So we favor measuring the expression level from every unique combination of cis-regulatory elements that are going to end up in a final design. We do that by having an intermediate step in our assembly where we introduce a reporter gene uh, to a cis-regulatory construct. We measure the expression level of that reporter gene. And then we have a one-step reaction to seamlessly replace that reporter gene with a coding DNA sequence of interest, usually a metabolic enzyme. And that brings us to the last feature of our assembly pipeline, in that we have a standard format in which we domesticate every coding DNA sequence that's going to enter into a multi-gene pathway. And this standardized format allows us to do one-step seamless cloning reactions to move that gene into a variety of expression vectors of choice. Uh, So we have uh, expression vectors that will introduce an N-terminal tag, ones that allow us to express a gene in E. coli or streptomyces or yeast, uh, some vectors that allow us to enter into a multi-gene assembly pipeline. And uh, so those are the key features of our assembly uh, strategy. And I mentioned early on in the talk that I wasn't going to get too much into the nuts and bolts of DNA assembly methods. Uh, But I I lied, I have this one slide that I threw in at the end at the request of the sponsors to to compare and contrast some of the uh, advantages of using type 2S restriction enzyme cloning reactions versus type 2 cloning reactions. So the, the two points that I'll make, first is in the architecture of the restriction enzyme site itself. Type 2, or these are, type 2 enzymes are what you probably first learned about when you learned molecular cloning. I call it hard cloning now. In type 2 restriction enzyme recognition sites, the recognition site tends to straddle the cleavage site. And what that means is that the, the sequence that's liberated as a cohesive 5-prime overhang or 3-prime overhang is dictated by the restriction enzyme that you used. In contrast to that, a type 2S restriction enzyme has a recognition site that's located upstream of the region of DNA that's cleaved. And these ends can be any sequence. And so that gives the genetic engineer the freedom to dictate the sequence of the five prime or three prime overhangs that are generated. And those overhangs are going to control the order and orientation at which fragments get assembled into the final plasmid. The second point that I'll make comparing these two methods is in the efficiency. So in hard cloning, uh, what's typically done is two substrate plasmids are digested to generate a number of fragments. And to avoid unwanted ligation products, for example, to reform the substrate plasmids again, there's an intermediate step of gel purification, where the fragments of interest are purified from agarose gel and then combined in a tube with DNA ligase to complete the assembly of the plasmid of interest. In type 2S enzymes, on the other hand, you can perform digestion ligation reactions in the same tube at the same time. You start with the same substrate plasmids. Those are digested by the restriction enzyme, and one of two things can happen. Uh, Either you form the desired plasmid, and note that because the restriction recognition site is non-overlapping with the the cleavage site, uh, it's possible to design a system so that the, the desired reaction product no longer has a restriction recognition site. So, in this one pot reaction, this plasmid is now safe, it cannot be redigested. If these intermediate fragments religate in an unwanted ligation, for example, let's say they go back and form the substrate plasmids again, uh, you reintroduce those restriction recognition sites, and this these substrate plasmids can be redigested to, to form these intermediates again. And so anytime you have a, a setup like this where you have some equilibrium. Uh, between substrates and intermediates, and then a non-reversible step to get to the product of interest, there's a principle called Le liaise Principle, which you might remember from your intro to chemistry classes as undergrads, that's going to drive this reaction towards the formation of your plasmid of interest. And this principle is what allows Type II-S single pot digestion-ligation reactions to achieve really high reaction efficiencies on the orders of 90-95 percent, even for a complex five- or six-piece assembly reaction. So a standard library uh, uh, assembly experiment in our lab will look something like this, where we'll start with a collection of genetic parts. Those will be promoters, ribosome binding sites, etc. Those will be assembled into a set of cistron-level constructs, which are then combined into different partial clusters and eventually into full clusters. And a few key points I want to make on this slide. One is that each of these final clusters is designed first in a computer and then fabricated to meet that design. This is not just a random assembly of parts in which we have no control over what final designs get made. The second point that I'll make, and this is why we call it an algorithmic DNA assembly pipeline, is that we predefine the molecular biology of DNA assembly before going through any of uh, this work so that the same restriction enzymes are used. To build all of our cistron-level parts, and we're going into the same plasmid backbone, and that standardization of the reaction protocols to build any of these diverse DNA sequences in the end is what makes it fairly trivial for us to build 50 or 100 plasmids in the same day. Because the only thing that changes in one plasmid design from another is what tube we went into to get the original genetic parts from. <clears throat> okay, so that's that's kind of the the overview of the DNA assembly methods that we use in the lab. Now I'm going to transition in the last 15 minutes to talk about a a proof of concept that we applied to try to produce this neuroactive natural product, seraphendic acid. The story of seraphendic acid is really interesting. It was discovered in the early 2000s by a group from Japan that was studying neurons from rat brains that they would culture ex vivo. They knew that adding fetal calf serum to these neurons prevented something called glutamate excitotoxicity, which is a form of apoptosis, uh, but they didn't know what, why that was. So this group decided to bite the bullet, and from 250 liters of fetal calf serum, which uh, is equivalent to roughly 500 or 1,000 fetal calves, they isolated 2 milligrams of this diterpene natural product, and they went on to show that that natural product has nanomolar potency At preventing glutamate neurotoxicity. They showed in animal models that it can decrease the damage and increase cognitive scores in animal models of ischemic stroke and Parkinson's disease, and it also is effective at uh, treating myocardial ischemia. So any, basically any pathology that involves programmed cell death is remedied using this molecule. However, you can't keep going back and isolating two milligrams from a 1,000 fetal caps. It's not a sustainable route. There was a total synthesis, a total chemical synthesis, that required 12 or 13 steps and had an overall yield of less than 3 percent. But our group decided to try to engineer a microbial organism to make a sustainable source, a sustainable route, to produce this natural product for preclinical development. Uh, One other thing of interest is, if you look at the chemical structure of seraphentic acid, it doesn't appear to be of mammalian origin. Even though it was isolated from fetal calf serum, no other mammals make a molecule with this carbon scaffold. Only plants or microorganisms have been known to make this carbon scaffold. So we actually don't know what the producing organism is. and That means we don't have a genome that we can sequence to find the relevant genes. Instead, we had to piece together a synthetic metabolic pathway to build this molecule. So we, we took a similar approach as a synthetic chemist. Uh, synthetic chemists like to do what's called a retrosynthetic approach where you break bonds in the molecule until eventually you get back to a commercially available starting material. And we did that with uh, using biosynthetic logic, arguing that this hydroxyl group, uh, the methyl sulfoxide group, are likely incorporated late during the biosynthesis, which would make this diterpene acid a late intermediate. This diterpene acid could come from in something called an entadisane carbon scaffold. And, and there are known diterpene intermediates to produce that entadisane carbon scaffold. So we kind of wrote this biosynthetic pathway down on paper and then had to go about finding genes that could be used to reconstitute this in a heterologous host. Uh, because we like streptomyces as prolific producers of, of, strip, of, of natural products we look towards streptomyces metabolism. And what I'm showing here are a number of diterpene molecules that are produced by streptomyces. So we could look in the genomes of any of the organisms that produce these molecules to find an enzyme to make this diterpene intermediate, diphosphate. Many of these known streptomycete diterpenes have the same AB ring structure as this intermediate, n diphosphate. so we can find genes for n diphosphate synthase. And while there are no streptomyces that make a uh, complete entadisane-based metabolites, you can see that three of the rings in, in entadisane are present in this molecule, platensin. So we reason that platensin goes through an entadisane intermediate, and that we could find uh, the required enzyme in that genome. And uh, lastly, some of these tailoring modifications, oxidation of this methyl group to a carboxylic acid, uh, introduction of this hydroxyl group and the methyl group, we weren't sure exactly where we'd get those genes, but again we figured we could use a high through, throughput DNA assembly approach to build and test uh, a lot of hypotheses, a lot of hypothetical genes that might do those reactions. <clears throat> and uh, so we found genes in, in the databases, uh, obtained strains from public repositories that had those genes and began uh, producing these these synthetic metabolic pathways in a heterologous host. So the very first library that we built was a fairly small library, shown here. And the the variables in the constructs that we built uh, had to do with the the gene content in the oxidation part of the pathway, since we weren't sure which genes could get us to that uh, carboxylic acid. We also varied the relative expression level of a lot of the genes predicted to provide the diterpene scaffolds. And what we saw when we introduced this library of gene clusters into a heterologous host is that each of the strains produced a unique chemical profile. We did see some strains that produced our desired diterpene acid at sufficient yields to allow us to determine the structure. We saw many strains that produced these structurally related molecules, too, that represented shunt metabolites that didn't make it all the way through to our desired end product. And so I'm going to, in the next three slides, just kind of give three take-home points from this initial small uh, library of, of differently designed genetic constructs, what we could learn from this first library. So the first thing that we could learn is what genes are required to complete this chemical transformation that we needed in the synthetic metabolic pathway, going from this methyl group, this exocyclic methyl group, to a carboxylic acid functional group required, it turns out, a single P450 enzyme. And this ended up being the first member of a new family of P450s that we were able to identify in that every gene cluster which had that particular enzyme was able to oxidize that that methyl group to a carboxylic acid, and that enzyme alone was sufficient. Uh, The second thing we were able to learn Is the importance and and kind of reiterate the importance of balancing relative expression levels uh, to control the final output of a metabolic pathway. It turns out that that enzyme which oxidizes the methyl group to a carboxylic acid would also oxidize the methyl group on an earlier intermediate and produce this shunt metabolite. If that oxidation event happened too early, then this carbon was lost. There's no way to convert this shunt metabolite into our desired final product. And it turned out that uh, balancing the expression level of this ent synthase with the oxidase made all the difference in uh, controlling whether the carbon flowed towards our desired intermediate, or sorry, our desired final product or the shunt metabolite. And that if we had higher levels of n adasserine synthase expression, then we were able to outcompete this undesired side reaction. <clears throat> A similar story was true for the other shunt metabolite that we observed, and that we found that by perturbing the relative expression levels of the geranylgeranyl diphosphate synthase and the N-copalyl diphosphate synthase, we could control how much of the carbon was lost towards this shunt metabolite and how much made it through the biosynthetic pathway, uh, all the way through to the desired end compound. Uh, and to add a acid. <clears throat> so I recognize that for those of you who aren't used to looking at analytical chemistry data, those last three slides were very fast, and I apologize for that. But in the interest of time, uh, I'm going to quickly move on. And, and uh, so we're able to produce by bacterial fermentation this late-stage intermediate in serophenic acid. And this is just a few chemical synthesis steps away from our desired final product, so we've been able to leverage the system now to make structural analogs and to use this as a drug development pipeline. But what I want to focus on instead is something that I'm I'm arguably more excited about, and that now we have a system to do some real science uh, related to multi-gene genetic optimization. In our refactor gene clusters, we have the ability to independently tune expression level of each of the component genes. And and that allows us to view a multi-gene system as a multivariate process, where we can control uh, expression levels of different genes. And there's decades and decades worth of uh, math and engineering principles that have focused on, how do you optimize multivariate systems like this? There are many different Uh, uh, scripts and and approaches that have been described to optimize multivariate systems and mostly those have been applied in chemical process optimization but we have the opportunity now to apply those to genetic systems and to try to optimize the the genetic structure of a multi-gene system. And so what does that look like? Well an experiment that we're doing currently in the lab is to try to optimize the flux through the entire precursor pathway of the methyl erythritol phosphate pathway. This is a a biosynthetic pathway that produces uh, the intermediate to terpene biosynthesis, which will feed to our desired uh, natural product. And what we have is eight genes in this pathway. We design cistrons for each of those genes that provide expression at one of five different expression levels. You can imagine from low, medium, low, medium, medium, high, or high. And with five possible expression levels of eight genes, there's a total of nearly 400,000 combinations of expression levels that we would have to build and test if we wanted to survey the entire landscape of that multivariate space. Instead, we're using something called a five-level fractional factorial design, based on on a Plackett-Burman algorithm that defines just 125 constructs which need to be built to survey that entire design space and to identify which variables are the most sensitive to perturbation. So, we can build uh, those 125 clusters. The design uh, of, of that assembly pipeline uh, looks like this. Uh, the 125 clusters have already been built and verified. We haven't introduced them all to the heterologous host yet, but here's some initial data from the first 20 or that we did introduce and how I'm organizing this data is to show each design as a line graph of the expression levels of the eight genes in that MEP pathway. And then the bar graphs show our titer, our isolated yield of ent antacereanoic acid, uh, with this gray one here being the best strain from our initial small library. So you can see many of our initial designs, our improvements over our current best, which was about 40 milligrams per liter. And when we take our best strains and uh, ferment them on large scale in two-liter flasks, we get isolated yields of over 500 milligrams per liter. In fact, uh, in our crude extract, we can just let our crude extract sit, and our desired final product will crystallize out of our crude extract, which gives us access to grams of, of desired product uh, of high purity without the need for any chromatographic separation. And so. We're really excited to, to uh, leverage the DNA assembly pipeline in streptomyces now to continue to engineer and interrogate uh, these, these uh, metabolic pathways for, for preclinical drug targets. So with that, I'm going to uh, summarize the, the slide that I gave. I introduced you to the importance of controlling relative gene expression in these multi-gene expression, uh, multi-gene systems, including natural product biosynthetic pathways. I introduced you briefly to our DNA assembly pipeline, and I showed you how we're leveraging this to produce a potent neuroprotective natural product. Uh, with that, I'll just briefly thank uh, the people in my group that that did this work. So most of the work that you saw presented was the efforts of a single graduate student, Susie Sue. Uh, the synthetic chemistry support was provided by a postdoc in my lab, Dimitri Prus. I'll thank the, the funders that support our lab. I'll thank Genscript for hosting Uh, And sponsoring this uh, webinar today and with that uh, I'll put back up the Genscript slide and I'll turn the the microphone over to Kristen to field some questions from you guys
1: well that was a really really interesting and inspiring presentation Mike I really appreciate it Um, one question what has actually inspired you to begin working on the MEP pathway
0: so if you look at uh, secondary metabolite gene clusters in streptomyces, uh, there appears to be two strategies for them to increase the, the flux of the precursors for terpene biosynthesis towards those pathways. In some instances, they use the methyl phosphate pathway, and in some instances, they use the mevalonate pathway. Uh, many of you will know there are two different pathways uh, to provide the precursors for, for terpene biosynthesis. And and when we surveyed the the strategies used in nature, it was much more common for them to uh, overexpress key enzymes in the MEP pathway. And so we decided to focus first on overexpressing that, but we are interested in also overexpressing the Valinate pathway as well, either in replacement to the MEP MEP pathway or uh, to supplement the carbon provided by the MEP pathway.
1: Great, thanks. Um, we have another question. Can we use this molecular aspect study in the case of invertebrates?
0: So uh, in, in my lab, we actually have a lot of different research directions going on, and one of them is in engineering uh, new biocontrol agents for insect population suppression. Uh, that's very different from our, from our metabolic engineering uh, aspects, uh, but yes, I would say that the, uh, the throughput for engineering invertebrates is much lower, but many of the same design principles, basically, if uh, you recognize that engineering any organism is going to be different, difficult. And uh, what these DNA assembly approaches give you access to is the ability to take multiple shots on goal. Now, one of the limits to throughput in engineering invertebrates uh, is is the throughput at which you can introduce the DNA into the host genome. And, uh, but there, there are, you know, different options for that. You know, some people use microinjection, but now uh, there have been electroporation protocols developed for uh, insect engineering. And, and I know there are, there are new approaches being uh, optimized at, at MIT for microinjection as well that will allow a researcher to let an automated computer system do the microinjection for them. So I think, yeah, uh, these DNA assembly uh, strategies are relevant to engineering invertebrates as well.
1: Oh, awesome. Um, how do you measure errors and solve it?
0: How do we measure errors and solve it? And so that's a great question. And it uh, comes down to uh, during a DNA assembly pipeline, you need to be very familiar with the type of failure modes that exist for the different types of cloning reactions. So, if you're doing Golden Gate-type cloning, which is still a cut-and-paste-based assembly method, the main types of errors are compositional errors. So, you'll be missing one of the fragments or having too many of one of the fragments. Uh, That's very different than if you're doing a Gibson or an isothermal assembly. Where one of the most common error modes are point mutations at the junctions, at the the new junctions formed, and so you need to know what type of errors are going to be prevalent with the type of reaction that you're running, because each of those will require different diagnostics. Uh, one of the reasons we really like the Golden Gate type to us restriction enzyme cloning is that we don't need to resequence every plasmid uh, to find errors. We can do PCR to identify that the the fragments are all there in the right order and orientations, uh, but since point mutations is not a likely error mode for that type of reaction, we don't need to resequence everything we we build. Well, oh,
1: okay. Um, and another question: Is there available software, commercial or free, to aid in the dessing on the initial refractured cluster?
0: Yeah, so I'll, I'll point you towards uh, some some PIs who who are developing that software, uh, particularly Doug Densmore, who's at Boston University. He's published a lot of different uh, algorithms, most of which are uh, freely available for academics to use, that will help guide the design of, of refactored systems. Um, Doug Densmore, in collaboration with Chris Voigt, have developed some um, really high-level software for automating the design of genetic circuits, and uh, but some of those same tools can be used for the design of metabolic pathways as well.
1: Great. Um, and then, are the clusters in your study expressed from plasmids or integrated into the genome?
0: In Streptomyces, we fam- we favor genome integration. Uh, that's that's kind of a a simple answer for, for, for now. Uh, there are different systems we've worked in that, that we have used plasmid expression, but for engineering streptomyces, we favor single-copy integration using uh, serine name site-specific integrases.
1: Awesome, well, I really, really appreciate um, all of your questions to everybody who asked and your really um, helpful answers, Mike. And that brings us to the end of the seminar. So again, thank you, Dr. Smansky, for such an interesting presentation. And I do have to say that don't feel alone as the only kid who likes organic chemistry, because I, too, loved organic chemistry. Um, and we're also going to go ahead and thank our sponsor, Genscript. And Genscript is a leading DNA synthesis partner for basic life science research, providing laboratory reagents and services to sciences from over 100 countries. GenScript DNA production services services um, utilize next-generation chip technology to synthesize custom-designed DNA fragments and plasmids, and their platform enables them to synthesize any DNA sequence required, making your cloning effortless. And as um, Dr. Spansky had put and we had talked about at the beginning of the presentation, GenScript is offering um, free GenPart DNA blocks to customers uh, for National DNA Day, and again, the um, the free sample coupon is at the web um, address listed below. And the promotion will continue until June 1st, 2018, and a link is going to be shared in a follow-up email. Um, and again, thank you to the audience for taking the time to attend and listen. If you've enjoyed the seminar and you'd like to view the video recording of the session, please visit our webinars page at bitesizebio.com and it should be available on our website within the next 24 hours. So until next time, good luck in all of your research and goodbye to all of us at Genscript and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com
0: webinars finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey but what if you don't have one look no further than mentors at your bench the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills techniques and career progression with short easy to access episodes you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.